I mean, who who is crazy enough to within pretty much a couple of days say, okay, sure, I'm going to go to Australia, take that over and manage that. So my key advantage there was I had no strings attached. Um, I was ready to go and I really wanted to do something. So I was like, hey, <laughs> have you heard of me? Here I am. Let's go. Fabian Schulz is the CEO and co-founder of Kodona a product that gives people easy access to the world of digital assets and decentralized finance, and with it, the chance to earn significant interest rates on their money. Fabian has scaled several ventures before starting Kuduna, and in this episode, he shares his key lessons from entrepreneurship so far. We discuss why curiosity is the biggest asset in life, the benefits of running experiments early in your career, why he believes DeFi will play a crucial role in the financial industry going forward, and how one can build trust in an early startup. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vorname or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Vorname. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vorname as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is produced by William Fransen. Welcome back, everybody. I'm super excited to be joined by Fabian. And Fabian, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Uh, really good to speak with you today. And thanks for your time. Likewise, likewise. So how early did you find an interest in business? How early? Um... Probably in school already. Uh, what we had in school was uh, the typical business, uh, business clubs, business challenges, whatever you want to call it. So these, uh, these little games that you do um, in your business classes or uh, politics classes, whatever, um, where you are, I don't know, you're just facing a challenge like start a company, what would you think about, um, or just write a business plan, those kinds of things. Uh, and I always found that really interesting uh, because it, it's just you're doing something, right? Um, different from the more theoretical, typical schoolwork that you, that you do very frequently. That was uh, just go out there, get your hands dirty, do something, build something. Um, and I always liked the idea of creating something from nothing, of building something um, that has an actual impact on the real world. Uh, so that is probably the first time or the first times um, that I had touch points with that and that I, that I really got into it. Interesting. I think some people just love to build stuff, right? It doesn't really matter what it is at the beginning, but what were sort of the first projects you remember? Did you take anything out of school and try to implement it in real life at the, at the beginning? I think in school, not so much. Um, they were very, very theoretical and probably like most people, when you are in school, when school ends, you're kind of stopping to think about it and do other things, right? So um, that was not necessarily the time uh, to, to take something out of it, especially because the idea we had were, um, I don't know, I think there were more concepts to get the general idea of how to build and not necessarily something where we were like, okay, let's hit the road running. We have to build this. So that, that fire that you need to really go through with it, uh, wasn't really there. That probably came later, um, at more at university stage. Uh, but the general, the general feeling of, um, this is what it takes to get going was there. And I think that was the first, the first seed, if you will, that was planted. 
What what was the mindset at university stage? What was the trajectory you started out? Because you did some pivoting in your own career. So how would you summarize <laughs> that journey? Because you had some pit stops and some pivoting along the way, right? I, I love a good pivot. Uh, and as you say, uh, pivoting both in life and in business um, keeps it interesting. So <laughs> changing it up every now and so often is probably something that makes a lot of sense. Uh, no, I mean, I started uh, started out studying law um not entirely sure why i think uh, two key drivers there one uh, i found a really great law school in hamburg i i was born and raised in hamburg and i wanted to come back to hamburg after school so um that was a good excuse to do that uh, and at the same time um i always i was always very interested in in politics and arguments in um just thinking through ideas and uh, also love the the, the good lawyer movies and all of those things. Um, Suits started a little later than when I started university, but always obviously uh, something that, that a lot of people love, right? So um, those kinds of ideas were there and I was like, okay, sure. Sounds like a great idea. Let's go and study law. Um, I don't know, like 10 weeks into it, uh, I realized this has nothing to do with what they're showing on TV. So uh, probably the paperwork is much more important than the, uh, the actual doing and, and being in court and being awesome side of things. Uh, so the good thing there was uh, I had something to do. I had something to study, really good university, nice people around me. And we had, a, we had an entrepreneurs club there. So a couple of alumni who were quite successful in starting their own businesses, had started that a couple of years back. Um, and a friend of mine uh, whom I was studying with, and I took that over uh, second or third year into, into law school. Um, and that was kind of the, the first touch points with real people building real businesses, but also getting, uh, getting real ideas that this is something you can do in real life. Um, so the, the, I'm saying real a lot, but that is because it became real then. Uh, and I think it's really important to have role models of people that you can actually touch and, and speak with and, and see, okay, this is something that's actually achievable. I'm talking to someone who's actually done this, who has gone through it. Um, and that makes such a difference. So uh, in law school, I learned how to build businesses because I didn't want to do the law school bit, but I wanted to do other things. Um, and that is probably when the first pivot came. I then did a, did a master's degree in management um, and then started building afterwards. But uh, yeah, pivoted from law to business fairly quickly into it. It's also interesting to see that in your early career, you tried a lot of different stuff, right? You were involved with different companies. You expanded to different countries. Uh, you, did an, you had a very interesting experience in Australia, right? So can you just talk to people about the lessons and how valuable it is to sort of go a bit out of your comfort zone? I know it's a cliche to say that, but to actually do that in practice is super valuable because you get so much exposure that you wouldn't necessarily get in your hometown if you stuck there for your entire life, right? Yes, absolutely. It's it's so important to just go up and, and do something, right? It doesn't really matter what. Um, I was very, very lucky that the first job I took was with with a uh, with a company builder here in Hamburg. Um, so these guys were and still are building e-commerce businesses mostly, um, and we're looking for these typical entrepreneur and residents kind of uh, kind of people. So just fresh out of university, you want to do something, you want to have a job where you can actually um, do things rather than just brew coffee or do the, the typical Excel analysis, right? Um, which is what 
you have you will always have in, in startups um but the cool thing there was they had exposure to to many different startups as well so it wasn't uh, that i was just setting myself up for that one company but rather the opportunity which was also the agreement that we had to uh, to look at a couple and spend a couple of months at various companies so for me that was the the perfect entry entry point into into startup world to venture building into working with and on something um, because I was able to see different things. And there I was very lucky. The first company I saw was a uh, an agency, which is an interesting model. Agencies are usually profitable. So life is good. You're making money. There is business. At the same time, it's a daily struggle to keep it like that. You have to keep getting business um, and new business, uh, but very different proposition afterwards. The uh, venture builder I was working for had this opportunity in Australia, which you mentioned. Um, they had acquired the company in Australia, and that needed to uh, that needed to be integrated into the the larger setup there. And they needed someone pretty much immediately to go over there and start doing that, taking that over. And I mean, who who is crazy enough to within pretty much a couple of days say, okay, sure, I'm going to go to Australia, take that over, and manage that. So my key advantage there was I had no strings attached. Um, I was ready to go, and I really wanted to do something. So I was like. Hey, have you heard of me? Here I am. Let's go. Um, and, and that was kind of how, how I was super fortunate to get into that position, um, but also how I ended up in Australia within super short notice. I think at that point I had maybe six months of work experience when I started there, uh, which was utterly ridiculous because by then I had taken over a company with, I don't know, we were like 20 people there. So I suddenly had, I think I was 25 years old. I had 25 or 20 staff um, a, a million revenue multi-million revenue business on the other side of the world um, and they were like okay you go do that <laughs> yeah sure why not cool um, so yeah that, that was that was pretty awesome um, it's, it's super interesting to think about you know the the advantages of being a bit naive, but also on the counterbalance, be able to take calculated risk. But looking at your career, how important has it been to be a bit naive and to just say to yourself that, okay, this is a big challenge, but I'm betting on myself to be able to step up to, up to the game and also, you know, manage to, to find a way here. Because you have to have sort of that mentality in order to to take those challenges on, right? You can't just sit back comfortably. That's going to create, you know, not the not the excelling career that you potentially want to try. I don't know whether naive is the right word, to be honest. Um, I, I think you need that natural curiosity to just say yes to things and to believe that you can make it work somehow. Um, the key thing that I that I keep telling myself in pretty much any life situation is uh, there's like 7 billion people on this planet and there have been a couple before us. Uh, there will be a couple after us. And no matter what I'm doing, someone else has done it before. So it can't be that hard, um, which is pretty much all you need to understand. And then you figure it out on the way. Um, there is There is no golden formula, right? No one gets it right all the time. No one knows what they're doing from early in, um, even the most respected people in business and politics and art, whatever, have started out one day and were like, I'm going to do this. And they surely had no idea what they were doing. Um, I think that is more important than, I think naive might be, uh, might be more negatively connotated towards being uh, blindsided very quickly and not knowing what you got yourself into. Um, I think you need that positive curiosity 
Um, and that is something that, that works quite well for me. Do you think that curiosity can be trained or do you think it's just like deeply ingrained in your personality? I don't know. Uh, that's, can you learn curiosity? Probably not. It's probably more a, a personality trait. It's probably something that is built into you through time by having exposure to other people who are curious as well. Um, probably very, very strongly related to the environment that you're spending time in. It's probably something that you can build up by doing exactly that, exposing yourself to people who you might think are curious. Um, I don't think it's something where you just take a course on, yeah, I've never heard of a course on curiosity, right? So I don't think it's something that you sign up to and are like, right now I'm really not curious, but at the end of this course, I'm going to know everything about curiosity. I, I don't think that's how it works. <laughs> uh, I tend to agree with that, is, uh, that point. Just looking at entrepreneurship in general, obviously you've been involved in several companies. You started several companies. We're going to talk about Corona today, of course. Um, but just looking at the entrepreneurship toolkit, sort of the skills you think you should be able to master in order to have a career as an entrepreneur, what do you think are some of the most important skills or habits you've seen that you sort of have to have in order to be able to live this lifestyle? Because being an entrepreneur, of course, comes with a lot of uncertainty. So you definitely need to have, you know, the, the ability to deal with that uncertainty. But just like in, in an overall, how would you summarize the, the ability and toolkit you need to have? The toolkit for entrepreneurship, that's a good one. Um, I wish I knew. <laughs> uh, I think the, the key element is a, a, an incredibly high stress resistance and that positive can-do attitude. Everything else, I mean, of course, I don't know, if you go in finance, you should probably understand numbers a little bit. If you want to build a, uh, I don't know, a construction company, you sh should probably know something about that. And uh, even if you're a doctor and you want to build up your own practice, you should be a good doctor. So I think the fundamentals for whatever you want to do should be there, of course, but the it's it's the the in between the lines bits, the soft skills that matter so much more because um, I mean, right now we're in the middle of a of a global crisis that. that is something we've not experienced for over a decade, right? So um, it adds to the stress that you're experiencing um, already. And I think it's it's so important to no matter what life, what other people, what even press uh, or, or I don't know, customers throw at you, you just deal with it. And same as before, right? Other people have done this before, they have succeeded in this. For some reason it has worked out in the end, there is surely a way we can make this work. Um, probably the key to success is not giving up. It's as simple as that. Uh, you have so many businesses that fail in the first couple of months or the first year. Um, what is that? Some people say 99% of startups fail in the first year, right? Um, and I think most of them don't have to. Um, it's just, it's maybe easier. It's easier to just say, okay, this doesn't work. Um, I don't know how to fix this. It's too many problems right now. It's too much stress, too many things going on. Um, it's probably more of those things uh, that, that sometimes lead to failure than the fundamentals not being there or whatever. No startup has the fundamentals from day one. Um, no one has it all figured out. No one has the business plan that is ex exactly executed as it was written up. Um, it, that is not how life works because there's always theory and reality and reality usually crashes, crashes that. Um, so I, I think it's probably that, that stress resistance and that 
that can do attitude that believe that you can move forward that you can find a way to figure it out that is the key ingredient to just keep going and and to to believe that you can keep building and that probably works if you have a team with you that shares that so we here at Pudona, for example, are super fortunate um, that we have been three founders from early on. Actually, one of them is my brother, so that alone means, um, hopefully, ideally, that we can speak quite quite openly and uh, constructively with each other. Family sometimes fights, of course, but at the same time, you've been through through life together. So, I mean, if I can't talk to that person, then who can I talk to, right? And um, I think founders' teams of three are usually very good because. It, Ideally, you always have someone who who can pick up the other two um, if if two were to be down, right? Um, and and it just matters to have because everyone has a down day, everyone has a bad day sometimes. Um, but if you have someone there who says, "Hey, come on, let's get back to first principles. Why are we doing this? Do we still believe in this? Do we think this still makes sense? Yes. Do we have a good team? We're now over thirty people throughout Europe. Um, every single one of them exceptional at what they're doing. So that obviously helps." Um, but but with that, uh, just building one step at a time, um, and having that that surrounding that shares these core beliefs, uh, that, that probably helps as well. Definitely. Is it fair to say that your parents didn't back you and Jakob to go together and to co-found the company, or was it like written in the stars that you and Jakob would, would form a company together? Uh, I don't think that our parents would ever have thought that we go into business together, quite frankly. Uh, especially when we were younger, we were fighting a lot. I think all brothers do that uh, when you're growing up. It's just normal and it's probably healthy. Um, but definitely didn't indicate that we would ever build a company together. I mean, in the first place, our parents didn't think we would build any companies. Um, I went to law school, he went to business school and became an investment banker afterwards. Um, so that's not the typical trajectory to then go out and, and say, sure, let's build a fintech, why not? Um, but somehow we did. I think it's, I don't know, it's its a bit coincidental. Uh, life paths crossed, uh, I don't know, situations were ready to do that, um, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, right now it's, uh, it's pretty awesome. So, um, and also our parents are, are happy with what we're doing right now. Uh, I don't think they would have thought that would ever happen, quite frankly. <laughs> interesting uh, how would you define the the startup scene in germany because i feel sometimes it's interesting to hear the perspective from a european country and how it is to build and scale a startup in europe versus us because obviously in in europe you have many more markets smaller countries of course so it sort of always impacts sort of the strategy if you're going global at least so how would you summarize the the german startup scene right now and the environment you're you're in mm. I mean, the German startup scene, I think, has evolved a lot over the last couple of years, um, especially more recently in the last one or two. Um, the general benefit that we have in Germany is it is a relatively large market already, right? There are 80 million people here. Um, it is one of the largest or it is the largest economy of Europe um, and one of the largest countries Um in, in Europe that uh, obviously comes with a lot of opportunity already. At the same time, I agree with you, uh, you have this whole mindset thingy and stereotypical German um, thinking along the lines of what can go wrong rather than what can go right, um, which is something that is incredibly annoying because I don't understand that concept. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, that's other people's problems, I guess. The cool thing is, um, 
I personally, having been in this in this environment now for a couple of years, know that there are so many great businesses out there, so many people building things, looking at problems and finding solutions uh, rather than the other way around. Um, I also think the political landscape has changed a little bit. Um, Macron has maybe started that in Europe in general by just putting venture building on the landscape again, um, having this more more entrepreneurs friendly mindset at a top level of government in Europe in one of the most important countries here. Um, and I feel like a couple other countries are picking up on that, uh, which is great to see. And we're also seeing with businesses growing across the world and the startup economy being something that is making more mainstream uh, media or making more mainstream news um, that Europe and Germany included has been looking at the United States for quite some time now and was like, I mean, we're having that in, in talk shows now and everything, right? So people are asking the question, why do we have so many unicorns? Why do we have so many successful internet companies coming from the US and not from Europe? Which is also one of the questions that Macron has been asking, right? Um, so I think it's important that, um, that we actually ask that question and, and try and find answers for it. And one of those is we need a more, more startup friendly business environment. We need, uh, for example, in Germany, uh, I think it's something they, they actually claim that they want to implement now, but you still cannot found a company digitally. You have to go to the notary and set up actual paper trails, be there in person, all of those things, uh, which doesn't really feel like 2022. Um, and from there, it becomes worse. There are so many other bureaucratic things that you have to do uh, that are incredibly annoying. So there are things that need to be changed, but we're also looking at them and we're changing them. Just recently, uh, there was a study uh, claiming that Germany is the most crypto friendly country in the world, which I think is a little bit ridiculous. Um, but it just shows that other people around the world are appreciating that something is changing here and that the landscape is becoming a little more innovation friendly, uh, which I think is a good thing. Definitely. You, let's go over to the finance space because obviously we've seen so many different companies emerge in the fintech era and then we have the crypto era, of course, and maybe Codona is somewhere in between, right? But what was the sort of the problems you want to tackle and why you went to the finance sector? Because there was were an app initially that, of course, we have pivoted right now. But what what is the story on how you or why you found the finance space so interesting from a European perspective? Because there are some macro trends, of course, in Europe that makes it very interesting to look at. Absolutely. I, th I think we chose this space because money matters right it's it's such a stupid thing to say but it, everything in life that is the i don't know that's the world we have created um everything in this world is connected to money and um when you innovate in that space it is something that affects everyone um and i think especially the financial industry that has had so much negative press for the first almost 20 years of, uh, of this millennia um, is something that is definitely ripe for disruption and ready for innovation. Um, and bringing the, the toolkits of entrepreneurship, of uh, speed of innovation to an industry that is mostly um, focused on large, slow and old school institutions, aka banks, uh, is something that makes a lot of sense because if you touch the lives of so many people, um, you can also improve the lives of so many people. And for both my brother and I, as well as Kelvin, our third co-founder, and I think many people working here, um, it matters whether we have a purpose in what we're doing or not. 
So just, I don't know, building the next colorful socks company or whatever can also be fun. Um, but it's just not as impactful as if you have a product that can actually make people's lives better. That is why we started out with our first iteration of this, which was an ETF savings uh, product. And uh, now the second iteration, which is Kudona, where you just store your money, have daily access to it and get interest on that positive interest right now, 3.8%, which is much, much more than you get in traditional financial markets with overnight or fixed term deposit accounts, um, not to mention regular investment products uh, that are currently down, <laughs> very much down and the ECB uh, giving us negative interest forever. So um, I think it matters. I think it matters to have good financial products accessible, um, accessible to and for everyone. Um, and make the experience 2022. It, it has to be digital. It has to be fast. It has to be accessible 24-7, 365. Um, it has to be understandable. It has to make sense and it has to help people. Um, and I think that is where we can bring a lot of our experience together with what the market is, is looking for. It's also interesting when talking about finance and also just the concept of simplicity, because sometimes, you know, in order finance can have a very complex background. So it's not necessarily the fact that everybody knows how the bank treat their money, right? It's not common knowledge. So how aware have you been about creating a simple and easy to use product? In, and this, of course, it's a counterbalance in sort of to to educate the consumer of what you guys are offering as well. But how has it been to balance that, like a super simple product, but also give the educational piece to sort of inform the customers on the product itself, right? Because that is sometimes a hard balance to strike. Um, that's a good question. And it's very difficult to answer because if you look at, if you look at banks um, and how they operate, I don't think anyone knows. I, Sometimes maybe even the banks themselves don't know what they're doing <laughs> uh, just because they are so large and they have, I don't know, if you look at Deutsche Bank, for example, which is always the prime example here in Germany, just because of the name of the bank, but also the relevance on a global scale. Um, they have just recently tried to update their IT infrastructure, which is mostly built on 70s technology. Um, and they have, I think, spent roughly $5 billion on upgrading that system to something that is more up-to-date, more recent. They have given up because they said it cannot be done. Instead, they are now rehiring people that are in retirement and paying them ridiculous amounts of money to keep maintaining that system. I think they're now starting a second attempt. Um, apparently, there's a guy now uh, heading up their IT department uh, who, who knows what he's doing, which is great. Um, so maybe they actually stand a chance to get it right this time. But if you just look at that, there is an institution that is so relevant in the world on a global scale in financial markets, and they are sinking $5 billion into upgrading their IT infrastructure just to find out that cannot be done. And I think that tells you everything about how ripe this industry is for innovation. So that's just the banks themselves sometimes don't know what they're doing or how they're operating. Fair enough. Um, and I don't think the key to success is necessarily that every bit, every iteration of the product, every detail of how something works in finance needs to be explained to the consumer. I don't think that is something that most people care about. Um, the key questions that people have about money are more, is this easy to use and is it secure? Like, does it work and can I trust them? Um, that is so much more important because, I mean, in the end, it's the same as with every other business as well. Uh, I don't know, you're, you're renovating your apartment and uh, you need to update the pipes. Probably you will not understand completely 
how all of them are connected and how they work, but you're getting someone to do that for you who for some reason you trust and you have faith that they can do it because they've done it before or because they have references that tell you, yes, he's done it for my house and he's done a really good job. The water is flowing, everything is nice, uh, that works. So I think that is more important than explaining how every single financial product works to the last bit. Um, and that is what we are focusing on as well. Of course, educational content matters and we try to explain as much as possible. There will always be people who want to deep dive on something. So um, having materials where you can go back to back and all the way through the product um, matter. We're, for example, setting up webinars now where people can ask questions to me and I try to answer them. Um, just because, again, in finance, you, you want to talk to someone, you want to know there's real people behind it, you want to know they understand what they're doing, and sometimes you want to know how it works in detail. Um, but we believe that the more, the more relevant bits are trust elements, so just having other people reiterate that, yes, this is a good product, yes, these guys know what they're doing, and ease of use, which is why we have built this beautiful, simple, easy-to-use app um, that apparently, so the feedback so far, uh, is very easy to use um, and, and that helps. How hard do you think it is to build that trust in the market when you're starting out, right? Because when people want to place their money, they usually hope to give it to someone they can trust, right? So, But when you start a startup, right, you have to build that trust from zero. So do you know, how do you build that trust initially? Is it just a lot of small things, no silver bullets in terms of trust? and Or, or how has that been, you know, evaluating it from your end? Yes, that is that is the key challenge, and it's virtually impossible to speed up that process. Um, I mean, how do you build trust? You cannot build trust overnight, right? Trust is reputational. Trust is um, networking effect. So um, people using it, telling other people about it, saying it's good. They are then telling other people again. Um, it's also things like what we are doing here right now, right? Just two real people talking about it and. Uh, with that proving, okay, there is someone behind that, a real human being uh, who hopefully <laughs> uh, knows what he's talking about. So I, I think it's just, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You cannot build trust overnight. There's no hack for it. Of course, you can, I don't know, produce a couple of reviews or give a couple interviews initially and just have that, that basic coverage of you to make sure people out there in the world know there is something there. Um, but then it's, a, it's, it's just a building exercise over months and years um, that just takes time. And I think you have to accept it. What excites you the most right now with the Kadona roadmap going forward? It, the most exciting thing for us is that we're working with state-of-the-art technology at one of the frontiers that I believe is the most exciting both in tech and in real-life impact. Um, and we're trying to bring together elements from traditional finance with elements from crypto technology. So we have taken a conscious decision not to go into, I don't know, Bitcoin day trading and these ridiculously crazy crypto schemes that you can also find in other products because we believe that is not something for the mass market. That is more of a, of a niche um, a niche quest for a very select group of people that are interested in doing that. As with every innovation, you have your first adopters, you have people who want to try it, and uh, there are probably two kinds of people in finance, the risk takers and 
the others <laughs> and the risk takers will always go for the there is the, i don't know 200x return on this product i really have to try it out because surely i'm going to make it um whereas the rest is just like okay this is my money i want to keep it let's find something that's simple and safe and secure and a little bit of growth is also fine um but the the underlying technology uh, we are in the space of decentralized finance right which already um, the name carries already that uh, that uh, that element to it that we're talking about more fundamental financial technology there and we strongly believe that is the future of finance so it's not about i don't know the the hottest coin in town it's not about dogecoin and elon musk tweeting about it it's not about um yoloing all your money into this crazy one project that can give you the 200x leverage but it's more about what do we believe does the financial industry in 20 years look like is it uh, these really large and grand bank buildings with hundreds of people um pushing paper and customers having to be there in person and signing that and doing all of those things. Is that necessary or is there a better way to do it? That is usually the question you're trying to answer when you're trying to innovate, right? Is there a better way to do something? And we believe decentralized finance is the answer to that. Are the existing protocols or the existing coins or the existing even projects working in this space, the ones that will be around in 20 years? Who knows? Likely not. Um, but the underlying technology, we believe, is what's going to be there. And as you as you said, we like to pivot. So uh, we like to keep up with with these trends. And if something new is coming up that makes more sense, we'll just shift our focus towards that. But having a solution for our customers where they are um, at at the frontier of innovation in finance, whilst also having a product that is simple and secure, uh, matters to us because we believe we will matter by sticking with that and keeping to innovate in that space. I think it's interesting if you talk about decentral, decentralized finance, because for many, many people, it can be a bit hard to get their heads around. But if you think about it more simplistically, like you have seen this trend in media, you've seen it in tourism with Airbnb, with media that people sort of get more, get more of the benefits instead of just one large corporations taking the whole pie, right? So maybe that's also a good framework just for people to understand why this DeFi space can be so massive because at the end of the day, it's about sharing the pie and growing the pie together more as a, you know, a network instead of one large corporation, right? Yes, maybe Airbnb is, is a good example even. Uh, if you look at the initial feedback that they got where people were like, this is such a stupid idea. Why would anyone want to stay in another person's apartment when they're traveling? I want to go to a hotel where I have all the infrastructure, all of the employees taking care of me, providing breakfast, whatever, whatever. And these guys were like, no, people want to feel at home even when traveling. Um, we know now who was right. So I think there's, there's always a lot of skepticism when you're starting out with something that no one has done before that is new or that is uncommon maybe as as per current beliefs. Um, but the question you have to ask is, do you personally believe that there is a reason for why this can matter? And do you believe that the technology that is there can fix that problem? And we believe that is the case in the, in the DeFi space, because if you look at just market, market caps right now, crypto, I think currently with markets being down is valued just under a billion. Um, Apple is uh, under a tr trillion, sorry, under a trillion. Um, uh, and Apple is, uh, is double the size. So if you look at uh, the market cap of one single company being larger than the entire space that is innovating the financial industry, 
um, there is likely a chance that this is going to grow over time because there are so many smart people around the world working in the space, innovating in the space, building solutions that can um, that can outperform what banks are currently providing in that space. Um, and I think that is what matters. That is why it is so interesting to be there. It's state-of-the-art technology. It's lots of smart people um, putting their resources to work in that space. Um, and it's, it's adopted by many people in the world, but there are so many more people who can still do that. Uh, and again, one company is larger than the entire space there. So I think that is really interesting. And that is one of the key elements where we believe being in the space today, right now, even in the down market, and many people say down markets are builders markets. And I tend to agree because all of the not so relevant projects get washed out, right? Um, that is exciting and that makes sense. Given that we, it seems like we are going into to a crypto winter with um, with the activity we're seeing, and you guys are building a European company. How is it to navigate all of these different European markets, where some countries have different views on the crypto space and DeFi space? How challenging is that, and how would you just summarize the the European market and landscape right now? It's incredibly challenging. Um, you have, I don't know, 30 odd countries where each and every one of them has different regulation in this space. So um, there is not the, the one common rule that they're all applying. The European Parliament uh, sorry, has been working on, uh, on Mika, um, which is the uh, ideally the European regulation for the crypto space. Um, which is something that is mostly ready to go and hopefully will be implemented by parliament this summer. Then it's another two years until member states have actually implemented that into law. Um, and by that point, we will have one central European regulation uh, that can be adopted by each and every company throughout Europe and then applied for all countries. But until then, you have to go into each, every, into each and every single European country, apply for a license or look at what the regulation is, whether you need a license, et cetera, et cetera, to, um, to, to be able to enter that market in the first place. And that is obviously incredibly annoying. That is something where um, a market like the United States, where you have, what, 350 million people in one country readily available has an advantage. That's also probably the advantage that the United States have in venture building or in, in startups in general. If you're building a new product and your market is immediately 350 million people speaking one language, that's different from having 80 million skeptics, right? So um, definitely a competitive advantage. At the same time, I think crypto regulation in the United States is much more hostile towards companies than what we're seeing in Europe. Um, I mentioned earlier in our conversation that Germany was just recently by one of the studies mentioned as um, maybe the crypto or most crypto friendly country in the world. Um, and I think the fact that the European Parliament is actually trying to create regulation that is true for then all of Europe is a positive indicator. We have now eradicated the thoughts of forbidding the technology. We have eradicated thoughts of crypto uh, getting banned, uh, of, uh, sorry, of Bitcoin getting banned. Um, and we have also eradicated the, the more restrictive um, ideas for banning parts of decentralized finance. So with that being said and, and being known, uh, the regulation that is going to be introduced will be a regulation that then creates an environment where we can build crypto products, where we can build decentralized finance products and have them 
legally introduced into all European markets at once, uh, which I think is incredibly relevant for the European economy because the financial economy or the financial industry in every country is one of the most important industries. It's one of the key revenue drivers for the country because lots of taxes are generated in that space, et cetera, et cetera. So having Europe as one of the innovation hubs with um, Yes, regulation and regulation. I'm actually a fan of regulation because it protects the consumer. It gives you clear guidelines as to what you can do, where you can do it. Uh, and especially when, when dealing with people's money, it's important to have these guidelines. Um, but having something where, where it's innovation friendly and where it can be built in Europe, one of the largest economies in the world, um, that will probably help us remain relevant um, at a global stage. It's very, very well put. Just some fun final questions, Fabian. The, uh, what's your favorite book you ever read? Is there any books you can recommend to the audience? Uh, oh, my favorite book I've ever read. There are so many. Um, I mean, as a kid, Harry Potter, of course, but I don't think that is uh, <laughs> what I should recommend to your audience, right? Um, I don't know. Uh, I like a lot of the, of the biographies, uh, quite frankly, on, on other entrepreneurs, just because um, coming back to initial thoughts, uh, you need these you need these role models you need real life people that have actually done things and um, so that is something that has always uh, always inspired me whether it's uh, steve jobs whether it's elon musk whether it's peter thiel um lots of great books uh, written by them or about them um maybe one of the uh one of the more interesting and content heavy books uh, that i've read um, and I have to think of the name uh, was by the uh, by the Vanguard uh, founder um, who has who has written about the relevance of ETFs and of diversified investments and how people usually will not outperform the markets. But what you have to do is have a broad portfolio spread across different asset classes or not asset classes, but different companies, because the asset class there is obviously shares um, or shares and bonds, but um, diversifying your risk matters. And with that, you are more likely to perform well in the market consistently rather than uh, just having your single bets and believing you can outperform the market, which is actually something we're applying at Codona as well, because we believe, uh, especially when you're in, in such a uh, such a young space, such an innovative space, you cannot just bet on one horse. So um, the way this works here, right, we're investing into stable coins or changing people's money into stable coins, which are the mirror of traditional currencies and then investing into protocols. But we're not just converting into one stable coin, but multiple. And we're not just putting the money into one protocol, but multiple, because we believe that it's just good policy and good policy in business. So um, even when not dealing with ETFs in this company right now, that general principle uh, is something that we that we always liked and continue to like. Uh, so maybe that's one. I'll have to look up the name. I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot. <laughs> no, but definitely we'll put the link in the show notes for sure. But yes. just like a, a final question as well, that principle of diversifying a bit, maybe also the perfect advice for young people who want to, you know, try to 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 get an impactful career to try and experiment at the start and don't be so fixed that you need to have the fixed route from the beginning right yes although my my key advice is there is no key advice <laughs> um because everyone has their own journey right and you can see with the, i don't know mark zuckerberg starting from university being incredibly successful um, so why would you ever argue that you cannot uh, even in your university or school build a company and uh, create uh, create something that is massive and has such a big impact 
Um, at the same time, you have super successful founders in their 60s and 70s even. Just lately, I, uh, I, wrote, I, I read an article about an 80-year-old uh, starting a company and uh, being the oldest person on the planet to build a unicorn. I think that was in Asia somewhere. Um, so there is just not that one road to success. And I think uh, what most people need to do is just follow their passion, uh, try and get as much experience as they, as they can, but also as they like. Uh, and then when everything aligns for you and you have the right team, the right idea, the right market, um, just sit the road running and never give up. I think that is the, the key ingredient to just not give up. Uh, giving up is unacceptable. Um, with that, you have what you need. Uh, and then it doesn't matter how old you are, where you are, where you're coming from, uh, what you've done before. Um, with that confidence, you can get it done. That's the perfect, perfect ending, Fabian. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure to host you. Thank you very much for your time and uh, good fun. If you like this episode and the content we produce, you need to check out our newsletter called the Fransen and Wohnheim Letter. You can find more information in the show notes. And also, if you want to see this episode, head over to my YouTube channel. Just type in Christopher Wohnheim. See you next time.